Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is a long-time friend of mine, really, Tan from Lane 45. Would you like to introduce yourself, Tan? Well, hello. Um, yes, long-time friends, and I've finally given in to your charms, and here we are on the podcast. Uh, my name is Tan May. Um, I am the designer and the founder of a London-based brand called Lane 45. Uh, it's a unisex clothing label, and we mainly do made-to-wear clothes uh, on a conceptual collection basis and uh, have been in touch with uh, Nick for quite a while and he's been asking for a podcast and I was just fine looking for the right time to do it and finally here we are. That means stuck in your flat with absolutely no excuses and nothing on earth to do so oh come on then. (laughs) I like to call it creative solitary confinement. Okay, we'll settle for that. Now, Tan, your journey towards becoming a menswear designer and company owner has been a non-obvious and quite long one, as I recall. Where did you start out and what were you originally wanting to become when you were a, a young lad? Oh, well, that's a loaded question to start with. Um, so... Uh, didn't really set out to become a menswear designer or a designer or anything to do with fashion at all. Uh, but yes, it has been a long journey. More than that, it has been a journey in the dark. Um, as you know, Lane 45 now is not just menswear. It's more like a unisex clothing label and quite gender fluid. But it did start as menswear only because I was completely um, new to the idea, new to the industry. And so I was, uh, just to take you slightly back, I was born in India and did the beaten path where I went to school, went to college and studied computers. Then no time off for traveling or anything. We just don't do that in India, especially in the 90s, early 2000s. And then after doing my graduation in computers, went on to do for some reason that made sense to everyone but me. Uh, a master's in business administration, so another two years. And after that, I landed a job with a company called Computer Sciences Corporation as a business analyst for insurance sector. So that is the educational background. But one thing, one good thing that happened was that company got me over to Norwich in UK for about 12 months to work as a business analyst. And then landing in the UK back in 2007, sort of, opened me up to the rest of the world because that was the first time I ever came outside India. So it was like coming to a new planet altogether and seeing a life that I had never seen before being in India. And um, it's I still took my time. Uh, I landed in 2007 and then I ended up staying on and on. Uh, and it was around 2010 when I moved to London and just how it happens with a lot of people when you move to london it you get a cultural smack in the face and that is what happened with me and i was much like a sponge i took everything in and i was dabbling with a lot of other things apart from my day job uh, till say 2013 14 and along the way i 
started getting a sense of my individual style, my personality, uh, what I am as a person. I know they say that you don't stop learning about yourself till the day you're in, well in your 90s or till the day you die. But um, my first reckoning came when I was in London around 2013 and 14. And that got me interested into your personal style, what you wear. And along those lines, um, I picked up a book on pattern cutting and tailoring and some videos on YouTube. That, I think, was the start of it. Lane 40 was, was still not anywhere in the picture, but I was dabbling and making one or two items of my own, very badly making one or two items for myself. And um, that is roughly the start of Lane 45. Again, the first collection was menswear, but um, I realized on the first collection while we were shooting for it that something was missing, and I think it was the balance to do with the label being unisex or to do with both men and women. And that was uh, basically the start of Lane 45. Right. And in London, you were also involved in Saturday or weekend trading as a Bits and Bobs uh, salesman, I think. Oh, wow. You remember. Yes. Um, so when, when I mentioned that I was dabbling when I was in London uh, and the cultural smack in the face that I got, I was 30 years old when I went to an art gallery for the first time ever in my life. And um, one thing led to another, I went to Europe for the first time and I would go to these flea markets over the weekend, say in Berlin or Paris, and would start collecting these vintage curiosities, small things, and um, bring them back to London. And that became a sort of a passion where I would over the weekends in London, go to have a set up myself a little table uh, in a flea market and sell those curiosities just so that I can get some good money and buy more stuff. So not exactly a hoarder, but I was still enjoying that phase where you would find something absolutely fascinating. And I think it was in those uh, flea markets, I would meet fellow sellers uh, who would be say art students or artists in their free time, but again, uh, have that passion of collecting stuff and then try to exchange or sell them in flea markets. So that was my first um, sort of a friend circle of people from creative backgrounds that I had in my life. And that was a big catalyst as well as I can see now. It sounds like you were slipping out of the predictable corporate environment and into a sort of artsy uh, cultural scene quite enthusiastically. Yes, uh, somehow getting out of the jaws of the corporate world. But it didn't end there for me. I think I was still working there till 2018 because I started Lane 45 late 2015, officially launched it in 2016. But I think it took a while for the confidence to come in that I can do this full time. Until that time, I was still having, like traveling in two boats, as they say, and... Um, still had my day job on the side, but I had no heart left in it. And then 2018, one day, I just put an end to it and went for Lane 45 full time. It must be quite a, I hate to use the word journey, but um, from where you grew up in India and, and through that corporate uh, world to where you are today, what do your family think about your uh, achievements? Um. They don't think I've achieved much, but they're still sort of, they, but now when they look at me, 
they still think I'm back in my teenage years where I uh, maybe I do not know where I'm going. And uh, my mother often asks me like that because she sees what I make and the, the sort of clothes does not make sense to her. And she still asks me like, do people buy these clothes? And I was like, yes, they do buy it. Like, but who would wear such clothes? They are too fanciful. And I was like, well, they do. And as you know, I sell big in Japan. So there we go. It's working. So they find it very hard to believe. But I think slowly but surely they're seeing. And I tell them about uh, magazine features and stuff. So they have started to get an idea about it. But still, it's quite a big surprise to them. Somewhere they must think that all the money that they spent on my education on computers and uh, masters in business administration has gone to a bit of waste. So they might still be hoping that you'll snap out of this middle-aged <laughs> rebellion. <laughs> yeah. uh, to be honest, well, uh, I think the first 20 years when I was in India um, is one block of my life. Then the next two blocks of 10 years each... Um, I like living three different life lifetimes, basically. So I've lived so far, I've lived three different lifetimes in my life. And I take it the current one is the one you enjoy the most? I think, yeah, because this is the one where um, I often love, it to love to mention it, that this is the one where I don't see any difference between a weekend and a weekday. And that is extreme happiness for me. That's a good definition. So you said that you got you became interested in uh, in the process of making garments and you were watching construction tips on YouTube and you started making your own how were, how was that successful to start with it was it was bad i was pretty much depressed after first week and i was like this is too difficult how do they do it and you, you know, I mean, it, you tried your hand with it as well, but you were far more successful with your first piece. I remember from your posts, my first trouser was, there was about an inch and a half difference between the right and left leg. Uh, same with the placket on the overshirt that I made, the buttons and the buttonholes were misaligned. That is how I started. Uh, but then I was like, okay, I'll give it two more goes. If it works, it works, otherwise not. And then I think doing that got me an idea of how it's done. And I needed that basic idea. I, w I never set out to make the clothes myself. The idea was to get a good basic understanding, if not a sound understanding, but a good basic understanding of how these things are constructed. And then I would just design and imagine and direct creatively uh, the art around it, whereas I'll hire people to make things for me that was the entire idea what was the first piece you actually sold the first one that i sold when it uh, was outside uh, the preview of lane 45 i made a uh, sort of um, navy corduroy uh, overshirt and um i wasn't very pleased with it so i just put it out in the garden uh, and forgot about it then after like cleaning when the summer were coming up again went to clean the garden and found it there lying there for six months but all the rain and wind and bit of sunshine in the uk weather had given it a wonderful fade and i took it to the flea market and it looked very good within the other vintage curiosities even if it was a new piece and somebody bought that for i think for 45 pounds and then it was a saturday and i was there again next day 
at the market and the guy came again and he's like can i buy another piece of that i was like oh it took take, took me six months to make it so <laughs> unlucky but probably not was that where the 45 in lane 45 came from no <laughs> oh i wish but no that would have got me stuck at the price tag of 45 forever uh, wouldn't have been financially viable for me but uh, 45 came from when I was, uh, the idea about Lane 45 as a brand was still um, nameless in my head. And I was doing, I was working uh, for a company called Accenture and we would work for different clients. One of this client that I was working on that time was a bank and they were based in Gloucester and Cheltenham. So I would travel there every Monday morning and come back on Thursday and would literally get no time to think about Lane 45 uh, or the clothing brand. And um, But I sustained a back injury while doing that rigorous weekly travels. And that gave me a chance to just work from home back in the day, not like now, um, to just work from home for about a couple of months. And it was around that time that I got some free time to think more seriously about the clothing brand. And um, I had this image about the brand where four or five men, women, they're just standing in a cobbled lane and just standing there and looking at the camera. They know that the picture is being taken, but they're not very nonplussed about it. Just like a picture back in the day where some people would be in a shot, half of them would be looking somewhere else, a couple of them would be looking at the camera and one of them would be shocked to see a camera there. Um, that was the image in my head. So that gave me an idea about the name uh, Lane, but a lane is supposed to have a number or a name. And because I, the back injury I got, I had slipped my lumbar four and five discs in my back. So that's where the four and five came from, and that became Lane 45. That's a, a pretty strange explanation. <laughs> uh, the image that you had sounds like the, the cover of a, a music album that, may or may not ever have been made. Yeah. Uh, Sound like, yeah, imagine ABBA, but very poor in English countryside. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that would sound like. But, uh... <laughs> so when you were starting out, you must have made a business plan because I believe that's what you have to do to sort of judge whether the idea has wheels or not. What did you imagine you were bringing to the world of garments when you were starting out? Um, I don't know if you can call it a business plan, but my entire business plan was I'd like to make clothes where there are no labels on the outside. That was the first priority. Second was people can order what they want in choices of fabrics. And third was they would be able to tell me if they have longer arms because that was a problem I faced when um, I had to go out and buy clothes that I would like shirt size 42 would be perfect on the chest but too long on the sleeves and a shirt size 40 would be tight on chest and too short again. So imagine there have been times when because of misfitting clothes I had neck spasms and back spasms. So it got to that stage where I was like, this is not right. Just wearing clothes that at best fits uh, only a mannequin well. And uh, my entire business plan was made to order um, 
no labels outside. And because as you mentioned, business plan, I was a complete outsider. I had not studied fashion or clothes making or the business about it. And uh, the idea that you make clothes on taking pretty much a guess or a, a trend forecast based on a trend forecast that this is the color or the print that would sell more and you make your usual sizes in that and stock them in a warehouse waiting for them to sell. Uh, I couldn't grab that concept. I couldn't agree with it. I know that's how the industry works, but um, being an outsider gave me a chance to just disagree with it and do my own thing. Uh, so that was my entire basic business plan, which is pretty much non-existent, to be honest. People now say that you were courageous, but I think you have to be a lot stupid as well. <laughs> well, I think the whole idea of creating a business plan might, um, that's, that's the sort of mindset of the, is it the right brain, the, the ordered, the, the business side of things. Whereas what you really want is the enthusiastic, the creative side, the one that has visions and really wants to, to make things. Yeah, no, um, but again, um, I know I did my master's in business administrations, but literally when it comes to doing something in practice, all the theory, all the books just go out of the window. And um, my the entire business plan in my head was, this is what I'll do creatively. This is what I'll um, um, do when it comes to uh, made to order and not stocking anything. Apart from that, the entire business plan was, I've got this much money in savings if it goes to a complete waste, then it's not a huge loss because I haven't got a lot of savings anyway. But if I don't do this, I'll regret. So I'm not, I don't have to take a bank loan. So that's a good thing. I'll consider this as a hobby or an idea that I'll just uh, place my bets on. If it works, it works. Otherwise, I'll get an, uh, get an answer that if I was cut out for this or not. Sounds entirely sensible to me. Because I imagine if you were doing a survey and asked 100 people whether they'd buy clothes that looked good for standing around in a lane looking in various directions <laughs> you you might not have got the re replies you were after anyway no not at all and um, i find surveys very boring to be honest because i um i know uh, i had studied at college as well about the importance of surveys for marketing purposes and everything but you can't ask people if you are really inclined to create something survey is not the right place again i'll leave that to business people who have got billions or millions of money at stake but this was like a small project to begin with i couldn't have been bothered to ask people if i should do something that i really wanted to do now you mentioned the problem about sizing and the fact that we as humans are all basically different sizes different length arms different size chest different size neck legs everything whilst most clothes are made to fit some ideal sizes yeah but you set out already from the start so that people can actually customize the sizes yes because uh, if you think i think in um in this country especially it's either you get it off the shelf or you get it from the tailors who would charge you about £100 just for the me uh, measuring session alone. So there was no middle stage as such where something that is made only for you uh, is affordable. And 
that's what I like because I grew up in India and in India wearing tailor-made clothes is not so appealing because a it's cheaper to get tailor-made clothes so people go like oh you were just trying to save money b it's more fashionable to wear a brand even if it's a brand nobody has heard of so going to a tailor is something that your granddad used to do back in the day so if you're a teenager in the 90s or in early 2000s and going to a tailor to get something made for you you don't do that because that's just ludicrous as an idea in modern times and it's the exact opposite in countries like here where it's uh, almost an art to get um, you're proud of getting something made for you and unless you happen to have that perfect mannequin sized or proportioned body i don't understand how people feel good or comfortable in clothes which are just off the shelf and because i've faced those personal uh, problems like i mentioned where um the sleeves would be too long or too short and i would actually be completely uncomfortable wearing them throughout the day that was a motivational factor for me um to it's not incurring me any extra cost uh to ask for the customers measurements and thankfully all the customers who came to me or still come to me um know how to take their measurements or if they're in london we just meet up for a, a quick coffee somewhere in a cafe and get the measurements done and it's just an all encompassing uh, experience for the customer as well which is very rare these days because if you with a little guidance it isn't that hard at all to actually take the necessary measurements not at all you, yeah on a practical basis you can send them uh, an illustration in an email just telling how to take those measurements um i have i'm yet to come across a customer who have done something horribly wrong while taking those measurements after looking at that illustration is quite straightforward. Hmm. And as you mentioned by not making garments for stock but actually making them to order you do have that option of adjusting sizing yes of course it's being made. Yes and uh, again I didn't um like I said I didn't buy the idea of making everything in standard sizing and then just stocking them waiting for them to disappear somehow miraculously as a new brand especially when you got limited resources and limited money at disposal so I think it all came together quite well for me luckily and um but I just don't think even if I had money apart from made to order uh, there's any other way I'll be doing it hmm. now when you were sort of imagining those people gazing vacantly around in various directions in this lane mm-hmm. did you have any sort of uh, sense of what they were wearing where where did your inspiration come from see i told you you quite taken with the idea of that image now <laughs> <laughs> poor abba uh, standing in in english countryside by the barns um i think i know there's one particular man that i can very easily visualize in my head he is wearing um i think the rigwell jeans uh with a pair of uh braces and a light gray uh bonduron shirt uh and i think he's i had a pair of uh chini boots in dark tan color uh they're broked and he's wearing those boots uh, apart from that i haven't been able to visualize much because he has been the center of focus in the image in my head and i think both that that shirt and the pair of jeans denims 
come from the first collection. So I can see a clear connection there. So before you actually made the first connection, where, where were you sort of finding your inspiration? Was it uh, work where from India or was it something you'd seen around London or? Um, it, it's an interesting question because I had a chat with somebody last to last week about uh, coming from a different country over to the UK and then becoming part of the cultural face uh, of UK uh, or what's going on culturally in the country here. And um, they mentioned that quite a lot of my clothes have got Indian influences in them. But to be honest, I never felt like that because even in the first collection, um, the because I was so new to creating anything, the inspirations that I had were quite dormant. They were there, picked up from books I read, people I saw while traveling around in Europe, especially, or predominantly. And the films that I would watch, that would be non-Indian films. So those were the places I got the inspiration from. And um, so the shirt that I talked about, Bon Durand, uh, comes from uh, these three or four brothers who were bootleggers and there was a film based on them called Lawless. And the idea of the shirt came from there. It's mentioned on the website when you go to the shirts page and it talks about the first collection, especially and the second collection, they talk about the inspiration behind each and every garment on the product page. Uh, it was only after the third or the fourth collection onwards that I um, created something, not exactly reinventing the wheel, but more like an amalgamation of um, inspiration rather than something very specific coming from a certain point for each and every product. Um, but that's where I got my inspiration from to begin with, from films and books and noticing people. I, I, I love people watching. And when I would go to those flea markets in the early days in Europe, um, 2013 and 14 was the time, I think, when the workwear was making a strong comeback, just about to make a strong comeback. And you would very rarely see somebody wearing the French chore jacket, but when you would see it, it will catch your eye. So I think a lot of people watching, a lot of reading about, and again, 2012 was when uh, the rearing 20s was making a comeback in the fashion circles and the vintage um, wear was quite a big rave back then, not so much now, it's sort of saturated, I feel. But uh, all those were quite influential in the first collection, especially. From my own experiences of traveling in uh, in India, I think uh, your observation that um, many Indians today aren't really interested in their traditional clothes, but they do look to the West and sort of adopt the jeans and t-shirt and sportswear of the West over what they traditionally would wear. Um, and it makes sense as well. I'm glad that you noticed that. Um, but it makes sense because quite a lot of Indian attire is not very practical on a day-to-day -day basis. So a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and the sneakers give you that comfort level to run around all day and be comfortable about it. But um, I'm glad um, maybe it's because uh, the times are changing. They do wear their ethnic 
ethnical wear on special occasions, but not as they would back in the day. Um, sort of a long loin cloth. Uh, you can't run and get into the uh, underground tube wearing a long line cloth. You, you'll meet some interesting accident. But um, there has to be an aspect of practicality, but again, an, an, another aspect of um, looking similar to what people are wearing all around the world, just to be part of a wider global community to be counted as equals maybe this. A lot of human psychology at play when I go back to India and see youngsters wearing what they wear. They do not. They do not mind the fact that they know that wearing uh, fake Gucci or Prada might not be the best thing to do in the long run, but they don't mind it. And of course, the traditional Indian wedding wouldn't be the same without the amazing wedding garments they wear. Yeah. Oh, have you been part of one when you were in India? Only at a distance. <laughs> okay. You did well because they can get quite boisterous. Right. Is it, do you think it's part of your background and the sort of gender issues inherent in India that have sort of inspired you to make a, a, your clothes in a unisex style? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite a subtle topic and um, it's not talked about a lot, but yes, um, in the last few years I've noticed people who had Indian origin or Indian background who work either in arts or fashion or literature, uh, more often than not, they do center around the concept of equality and gender equality a lot. Uh, say, um, Notice like uh, Rupi Kaur, if you look at her writings, they do talk mostly about the inequality that women herself or her mother faced growing up in the families. And quite a lot of other painters and artists as well, equality, gender equality is a huge issue. And I think that has to do with how much we have grown up um, with a society that thrives on uh, gender inequality and women are unofficially the second or third class citizens. And um, I grew up uh, in the same way, both my parents are well-educated, but that doesn't hide the fact that I saw gender inequality in my family as well, though probably not as bad as uh, usually, but uh, I could still see it. And I still see it on a daily basis when I go back there. So that must play a part if you're a thinking being, if your consciousness is on a slightly more expanded level, which again got um, expanded when I came to the UK and I saw how the society that is supposed to be called an equal to all society operates. So that opened my eyes and my mind. And yes, uh, when I started doing unisex law, there was an attempt, a little attempt, but a meaningful attempt to establish the gender, inequal, uh, gender equality. Hmm. So when you make unisex clothes, are they the exact the same or are they sort of gender modified uh, because men and women do have different bumps and bits and... True, true. Uh, I think uh, for the tops, they are pretty much the same um, because, uh, again, we do not make uh, small, medium, large. We usually make a garment um, as per the chest measurement and if, say, a certain overshirt, if you order it in size 36, men or women, 
then um, the pit-to-pit -pit measurement for that overshirt, if it is 44, like 22 inches uh, from pit-to-pit, -pit, then it will fit exactly the same way to a th person with 36 chest, be it a man or a woman. Um, but when it comes to trousers, as you said, um, the male and female anatomy has a clear distinction when it comes to trousers. Um, we do cut the trousers differently for men and women because the idea is not to push an exactly same shape and make everything looks, uh, look like um, sort of long cardboard pipes, but more like that it should be comfortable and they should feel good while wearing them. Hmm. It is interesting because I'm often asked, um, well, by my mother and my sister, now, where can we buy clothes like yours Mm. But for ladies, uh, because some of the brands I like, well, they, they might make a woman's range, but then they make it entirely different when what the people who ask me are after is really yeah, okay. men's clothes to fit oh, okay. women. Mm -hmm. But not many do that. No, I think, uh, again, it's a factor of money as well, because women have been, um, this is just my personal take on it have been conditioned over the years to that if they're wearing trousers they should have a certain shape and they should not now obviously they should not look like a man because again there's another take on the, the entire feminist agenda that unisex clothes are not really unisex these days because they're more like men's clothes made for women as well but it's just a personal take some women like to wear clothes that are uh, men's clothes because it gives them more freedom to walk around and are more they consider them more comfortable but some women uh, who are my customers they also say that I want the same pair of trousers but I do not want to look like a man so I, I've learned about hu human psychology and the psychology of the current times in the last three four years while working for lane 45 more than I've, I could have ever read in a book do you have any interesting observations you'd like to share there um, no, I think those ones are quite, I don't have any certain anecdote as such, but then when, uh, when it comes to the women customers, there are two types who come. One is that I would like to have a pair of trousers that are men's trousers because I often used to wear my dad's clothes and I want to have that feeling again. And the other one is, well, I don't look, want to look like a man because when I was growing up, I would have a boy's haircut and people would tease me. So now that I wear something that makes me look like a man, I go back to those childhood days. So those are two very different but interesting uh, distinction uh, between the same uh, group of people coming for something entirely different while ordering the same pair of trousers. Hmm, interesting. And another part of your ordering process is that you have a whole range of fabrics. Can you tell me a bit about how you select the fabrics you use? So um, I think depending upon the mood of the collection, the colors are pretty much in the same uh, palette. And um, now the next collection that I'm going to do will have a small selection of linen fabrics, uh, but they're all stripes and lines. And um, like I said, even from my own personal perspective, I like a certain jacket in a certain fabric, but that not uh, that might not hold true for the customers, and they might like it in a different fabric. 
And again, made to order um, serves me well here. It helps me give that power in the hands of the customer because I can very easily uh, say I have I had a store where I made certain things in certain fabrics and they're just hanging there. And I can very easily visualize a customer walking in saying, I would have loved that jacket, but in that fabric. And that was my entire idea where a customer should have the freedom to choose the same jacket in about three or four different fabrics. And if there are 10 items in a collection and 10 different fabrics, then they should be able to mix and match and make their own outfit. I can actually relate to that strongly because I very often see either a garment or a fabric which are good, but not at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> a mismatch. So when you select fabrics, do you are you going for sort of organic or got certified or sustainable fabrics, or is it purely the visual aspect you like or the, the tactile? No, I just go for anything. No, that's not right. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so far, I've only worked with organic fabrics. And when it comes to sustainability, I think um, I was having a debate um, a few days ago as well that people are getting more and more uh, confused and uh, unclear about the relationship between organic fabrics and sustainability. They don't mean the same thing. And I've gone with fabrics that I've bought as sort of dead stock or leftovers or surplus. They were completely organic, but maybe not sustainable. And and then I've got gone for sustainable fabrics, but they were not organic. So I'll just clarify this. Um, something organic, let's say organic cotton, it takes huge amount of water. Uh, one organic T-shirt alone, the fabric used in it, uses about 10,000 liters of water to grow that organic cotton just to make one T-shirt. Now, when you think about one liter packaged water bottle and then you multiply that by 10,000 and fill uh, a room, and then you actually think that one T-shirt will come out of this, you get an idea of the huge problem that we have in our hands that just goes past us every day. And sustainability is an entirely different concept as well. Like I said, I have worked with fabrics that were not organic. So I've worked with fabrics that are uh, recycled and recycled from uh, pet bottles, plastic bottles. So not organic, but sustainable. So they're clearing the uh, environment for us. So I've worked with both fabrics, but um, those are the two things that I usually work with, organic fabrics and sustainable fabrics as such. Um, but again, uh, I often, when I'm sort of stuck in a corner in this discussion about organic and sustainable fabrics and if how much difference they do, I think it just comes about how you choose your vices. You can't live a life without vices, but it depends uh, how heavy is your bucket of vices compared to your virtues. Um, I do have to, sort of sacrifice on uh, a lot of other different fabrics that would have helped me express my creativity better. But until I am absolutely certain that they're not doing any harm to the environment, I'm not able to do that. So for now, if it comes to uh, certain striped fabrics or something that is yarn dyed, 
I have to solely um, depend upon finding surplus fabrics or dead stock fabrics. But uh, plain fabrics uh, I can get from sustainable sources and get them hand dyed. Mm. I heard something weird uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was a company making, um, well, using fabric made from typically recycled bottles, so a sort of recycled plastic fabric. But instead of using recycled bottles, they were sourcing brand new bottles to recycle. <laughs> okay. So technically, yes, the fabric's made from recycled plastic bottles, but ouch, the, f <laughs> the bottles yeah, that recycled haven't like, even been used. Uh, right. Wow. So, okay. And how, how is the reception? Yes, yeah. wow. I, I think that's probably something they were keeping under their hat, but um, it just shows <laughs> how immensely complex the problems are and how blurred the whole sustainability issue is. I think it's a key word now. It's just a jazzy word these days to for almost um, every major brand as well to come out with a sustainable collection. But I don't understand. Like um, I remember two or three years ago, H&M came out with a sustainable collection or an organic collection, which is a, another way of saying that clearly other, uh, all other work is not organic or sustainable at all. But it's the responsibility of the customer to spot that and question the brand rather than just going like, oh, nice, I'll pick up something from this collection. And like, It's so nice H&M is doing a sustainable collection. But what about the entire lifetime of their manufacturing, which is quite questionable? Mm, that's, uh, they don't want you to think too hard about that, really. Well, the, the entire way, uh, concept of uh, capitalism, don't think too hard. Just buy. <laughs> so you could also sort of wonder about every new sustainable clothes company starting up now. Um, yeah. Are they making the world more sustainable by starting up or less? True. But um, again, goes back to the question that if somebody is really... I, I understand about small brands who um, are making clothes and sustainability is their very principle that they want to work upon. And you do have children going to fashion colleges and not all of them would end up working for other brands some of them would um, nurture a dream to have their own clothing label and you can't fault them for that and this will not end there would be new and new brands coming out every now and then but just making clothes sustainably can't be your uh, entire game plan um, it's just a small part of doing your work. It's the it's a very important part, but it's still just the small part of how you do things. But what you do is again the bigger thing. What you're making, rather than you can't make um, ordinary or boring looking clothes and just sell them on the, in the name of sustainability. Mm, that's that's true. You do have to actually make something that people want to buy yeah exactly if it's sustainable then that's a that's a that's the best way to go about it i do see a lot of things now being sort of marketed as sustainable yeah. and it strikes me that there is little else about them mm. that would make me, me want to buy them yeah i mean it's it can't be your uh usp uh, what do you do? I make sustainable clothes. I'm like, okay. But it can't be a USB. A USB still have to be your creativity. And sustainability is something that it has to be a given anyway for new brands now. You can't escape sustainability. I mean, it shouldn't even be mentioned 
in time to come. It should be a given, but I think we're still far away from that. I guess last week was um, talking about how um, we should make clothes that last for a long time. Now, to my mind, there's two things that sort of go into that. Mm. One is that they have to be made well enough mm. to actually last a long time yeah. in construction and fabric and whatnot. But they also have to be made in such a way that you actually want to use them for a long time. Yes. Um, but it's a quite a balance to strike. But I, I was thinking about it uh, probably this morning, funnily enough, that um, when it comes to a garment being worn for a very long time, it's a two-way traffic there. It has to come from both sides. The maker obviously have to use a good fabric uh, that is not only strong but uh, lovely enough to be worn over a long period of time. But then from the wearer's point of view as well, that they should be ready to darn it and repair it when there's a problem due to uh, wear and tear and take pride in it that they just simply haven't thrown it away uh, and have done their bit to make the garment go longer thereby doing a very tiny fraction of goodness to the environment. Do you think there's much effort put into actually making clothes repairable? I'm thinking of the sort of construction aspects of it. Um, I think what uh, we do sometimes is uh, when we make garments here, we make a point that the leeway of the uh, extra fabric usually is not much within the garment. So over a period of time when you've been wearing something, unless it tones from a certain pressure points, such as majorly in shirts like the elbow, uh, if you've been wearing a garment for a very long time, like a jacket or a shirt, then the main one of the main pressure points where it will develop a tear is around the elbow region. Um, and... You can do something very beautifully over there. If it's a tone there, you can get an elbow patch in a slightly different fabric and that'll just reinforce the garment again. Uh, and also, I mean, that was the obvious reason why garments come with elbow patches because they're supposed to last you long in those pressure points. Um, but there's an entirely different beauty to darned garments as well. But again, it depends upon the wearer's point of view. Some people think it would make them look like wearing tatters and that's not very uh, appealing to them mm. i often think about this when uh, when i see uh, the denim enthusiasts talk about how uh, their latest project trousers have suffered a crotch blowout and i'm sort of thinking now i'm not sure if that's poorly made jeans or if it's a sort of body issue but <laughs> the fact that it will take them about eight months and that they've sort of <laughs> Their, the crotch of their jeans is sort of disintegrated. Could oh, that have been made in a better way? I, I mean, it doesn't really bear thinking about it. It all gets a bit sort of gross. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I think denim, yeah, how people are making denim these days in about 15 hours and such heavy construction material um, and the thread they're using... But again, guys that you might be talking about, I might be wrong about this, but are people who are bikers or people who are workers or have a sort of hands-on 
related work on a day-to-day basis. Or of course, after eight, nine months, it would come off. And just you can't keep blaming the garment or the manufacturing about that because after all, I, I think I think the guys I'm thinking of would like you to think. Oh, okay. Were, <laughs> some of those guys. It's <laughs> yeah, part of the the cultural appropriation of the the stolen valor of the blue collar worker. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get into yeah. trouble with them now, but <laughs> no. But then, uh, even some of the pieces that I've made have been called the interesting comments that you get on Instagram without because it doesn't take uh, people don't have to spend a penny before commenting uh, on Instagram or any social media. Um, I had somebody comment on one of the jackets saying, um, "Poor people clothes for rich people." I think quite a few will get that, and you're not the most expensive of makers no. to get that either. No. I'm sure Margaret Howell gets yeah, that a lot yeah. as well. I'm glad I'm uh, in good company then. It's a, it's a typical snarky comment from someone who'd actually like your jacket, but probably wouldn't mm. see fit to buy it. Would still go for, yeah, some other brand. Um, as in the sustain, sustainability aspect, though, I think you're after a good start in the fact that you're not sort of contributing to the overproduction and uh, deep sales landfill problem we yeah. have today, where anything that isn't sold within a few weeks from the fast fashion outlets will, well, like Burberry were doing, they were burning it so as not to reduce the value of their overstock. Nice. You have others putting it into landfill. Yeah. I know, uh, I think H&M were also burning stuff uh, or just sending overstock directly to re- fiber recycling. I think Louis Vuitton does that as well. But um, the thing that I like about Louis Vuitton as an, as an exception is that they have their own forest. So uh, from that point of view, it's, in that respect, it's quite a sustainable model that they have, where they have their own forest that they reforest again and again and get the material from there and make things. Uh, but again, they do the same thing. If anything is, they don't do sales, and if anything is not sold or anything needs to be repaired, they I think they uh, put it to, uh, they burn it, just to not um, undervalue the goods, as you say. I wonder what they're using their wood forest to make. Uh, uh, trunks and stuff like that. They do a lot of trunks and suitcases and huge boxes uh, that, as you can imagine, the price tag. Now, not long after you started up Lane 45, you actually managed to get some shops in Japan to stock you. How on earth did that come about? I have no idea, but I'm so glad it happened. Um... It was after, I think, my second collection, uh, the images were on Instagram, and Instagram was still um, innocent and honest back then, uh, like a little child that we all loved, not the adolescent that it is now. And um, so somebody spotted it, a distribution company called Maiden Company. They spotted it, and they said, we're in London uh, next month, and we would like to have a meeting. I was like, yes, sure. And of course, I couldn't have met them in my bedroom because I was operating from my bedroom back then. So I had met them at a cafe and they were like, where's your studio? I was like, well, I don't have one. And they were like, OK, I'm thankful that they still gave me a chance for that first order 
was a very small order, uh, but uh, they quite liked it. But by the time they visited me again, I had a small studio in Finsbury Park in London, finally. And um, that is how it started to begin with. It was very small orders again, but good enough to give me enough confidence going forward. Um, but now I think we're talking sparsely around 25 to 30 stores across Japan, majorly in Tokyo. That sounds like a lot of volume. Um, um, because of how, uh, thankfully, these stores function, they're still quite minimalistic. They don't order a huge number, but they order some good small things from a number of brands. So the volumes are still very manageable for a small brand like me. And I don't think if it ever doubles or trebles, I will find it hard to manage. I would still welcome that fact, because even when you double and travel, the numbers that I'm currently handling. It's not a huge number, but it will still uh, give me good impetus to um, progress on. But um, no, I think it's a very good manageable number, nothing huge. Which parts of your collections do they like the most? Anything which is about three times the usual fitting size. <laughs> so they just love their uh, pieces. Um, if you're a chest 40, human being they want the jacket to have a pit to pit measurement size of about 35 inches so we're talking about a 30 inch gap in some of the shirts that i've made for them so they I don't even know whether to ask about the arm length <laughs> the arm length and everything would be fine but i myself wear something that i made for the japanese market two years ago and I was like, I don't know how I'd look. And I, I, I wear that piece every day now. I'm a chest 40, and that jacket is um, chest 62 inches. So that indicates that their idea of the perfect silhouette, I'm talking fashion talk now, yeah. is entirely different from... Oh, yes, entirely different right. now. Yeah, um, but again, it's uh, Tokyo. When I went there... Uh, like I said, I love to observe people and I'll be in a tube and I would find it very hard in a row of 15 people sitting in front of me in the tube. Every person will have an entirely different style from each other. And I think that's what, um, um, on a stylist pedestal, Tokyo is um, on a different scale. And um, as of now, the distributor that I have and the stores that they sell to or the stores who come to them for exhibitions and stuff they just want their especially the shirts and the jackets quite a few of them to be quite large and free flowing do you think this is a new style in Japan or something that we might see coming this way soon this way I, I, I find it hard because I think we people in in the UK or even to an extent in the in Europe are um, still quite um, not conservative in approach but uh, still take the middle path so we would go off the conservative approach and go a bit stylish but again not to raise eyebrows uh, I hear a lot of people a lot of customers from the UK especially saying I absolutely love but I don't think I can wear that and I just don't understand why. If how can you love it but not you you can't even think that you can wear it. It just needs 
just put it on and give yourself some time because you've never done it. Obviously, it will feel odd. I had a lot a, a, a tough time when I wore really wide-legged jeans myself for the first time because before that I had not worn anything with a bottom cuff size of more than 17, 18 inches, and there I was suddenly wearing 22 inches wide trousers. I just felt like I'll fall through the bottom cuffs, and I felt like a bicycle thief. But um, <laughs> it just becomes second nature because um, it just does. You just need to try things out, but not everybody is cut out to try new things out, maybe. Well, there is that curious expression of whether you can pull it off. Yeah. Which sort of, I guess, comes down to this feeling of, do you think others will think you look good in it? But is really based on your own self-confidence. Yes, I think still 70 to 80% of people wear clothes either to fit within a group or to just um, make sure that other they don't stand out, basically, which, again, comes back to the first point. They want to fit in a group and don't want to be looked upon in a way that you're standing out of the crowd. And that's why the entire concept of bestsellers, as soon as in uh, fashion industry people think that this is the best seller has stocked out they want to buy more and more of that which just doesn't make any sense to me because there are about hundred thousand people out there already wearing this why would you want to wear something that is exactly the same and you know how people say that really wide bottom trousers don't look good on short people or really huge oversized baggy clothes don't fit shorter people you go to japan and they're not particularly tall people and almost Everybody, as per the trend or the st their style, they love to wear huge bottom trousers, bottom cup trousers, and big, big jackets and shirts. And they don't mind looking like anybody's idea of what short people should or shouldn't wear. And it's they look beautiful. And I think we're still quite far away as far as, especially the UK is concerned. Yeah, so like we were talking that... Um, People either um, wear something to be part of a crowd or not stand out completely in places like UK and Europe. And I think they still refer to this um, guide where, which tells them that if they're short, they should be wearing narrow bottom cup trousers to make them look taller. And um, there's a sort of a layer of lie in it as well that if you're short, you're short. You're a certain height, um, but people want to look somehow still taller. Uh, or a better version of themselves. And that doesn't happen in Japan. So they're not particularly tall people. Uh, but when you go there, you see, uh, irrespective of how short or tall they are, they love to wear their really big bottom cuff trousers and really baggy and oversized shirts and jackets. That, too, uh, one of those eyes in the UK would make them feel much shorter compared to how short they already are. But uh, they don't really care about that. I think they love the idea that they're able to wear what they want. And um, I don't think if you're wearing something that is baggy or big uh, bottom cuff trousers or something like that, and you have or, or come from a certain height group, it will make you look shorter. It's just a perception or people who are, say, personal shoppers or stylists have um, sort of, they sell an idea sort of comes a bit back to that uh, sizing point again, whereby if you are a size medium, i.e. the average of all men, mm. 
then your measurements are so and so and your height is that mm. and that is the ideal we should strive for and <laughs> how, by, how do you change by, your skeleton well you then you have to sort of wear trousers that are tapered in such a way you mm. have to wear uh, short-waisted jackets or whatever and uh, maybe if you wear a hat you'll look a little bit taller um, you could wear some shoes with sort of sneaky magic soles <laughs> so you gain an inch oh. or two but you also you're sort of working towards this ideal that has been decided by someone yeah just striving to look like a mannequin again but yes uh, i think um fair enough we're human beings after all we're born with certain complexes or we grow up with um, new acquired complexes and uh, it just shows when we are uh, an adult uh, and when it comes to clothing we try and compensate for those complexes again so those might be the reasons when that happens but um, uh, thankfully uh, not everybody thinks like that but then if that's um, what you want to do you're free to do that and um, I again get up two sets of customers one who says I don't want a jacket uh, which is which looks like a box so I don't want it to be wide and short at the same time and then there's another set of people who come and say I want a jacket that looks like a box so it I don't mind if it's wide and short and now there's the quandary that it's short and wide both so what are you going for are you going to look tall when you're wearing a short jacket but then at the same time because it's wide are you going to look short and have a wide torso so I think um, it just depends um, if you quite like the idea about your body shape and size and you're comfortable with it and you take pride in it and um, you're okay to stand out. Yeah, I think it, again, <laughs> sort of I keep looping back idea-wise here to this idea we have when we're moving among people that everyone's noticing me, everyone's paying attention, we're so self-conscious. Mm. Whereas, as everyone is actually thinking the same, yeah. well, a lot of them at least, a lot of people are completely oblivious. Uh, but everyone's sort of so concerned with what, how others are, are looking upon them that they don't realise that no one's actually paying attention at all most of the time. So maybe the person who wanted the, the sort of more fitted jacket is concerned about everyone looking at them and the people who want the short, wide jacket want people to look at them. A desperate bid for attention yeah again two types of people one is attention seeking one is who don't want the attention for the wrong reasons about their clothes on them but if you are literally walking around in circles and they're commenting on your clothes all the time not in a good way you need to change your friends <laughs> but um again um like i said we grow up with such complexes and they come out in various shapes and forms and uh, being conscious of how people will perceive you depending upon what you wear, is one of those ways. And, um, yeah, it's a funny thing, but uh, I think we're still maturing as I have started to work. Uh, I'm still not part of the industry, but as I've started to work with clothes over the last few years, I can see a sort of slight change and shift. And another thing might be that most of my clientele is either creatives or people who... Uh, are creatives on the side or people who like arts and culture as such and those people are quite adventurous i still get an odd like oh i don't want to look like that but they're like i haven't worn anything like this before but i would like to give it a try it looks beautiful 
So it depends again what sort of uh, background you're coming from when it comes to wearing something that you have never worn before, but you want to, you like the idea of wearing something that you have never worn before, because it does has an impact on how you talk, how you move around. I know it sounds silly, but what you wear has such a strong impact of how you talk, walk, move around, and how you behave. I, I think you're definitely right there. I, the, the comparison that came to mind now was Batman and Bruce Wayne, where you can either sort of walk around completely stealthily in your regular outfit, no one will pay attention to you at all yeah. because there's nothing remarkable, or you can go totally Batman and just do your go thing. Large. Yeah, exactly. That just reminded me. I just imagined Batman wearing cross, uh, sitting cross-legged in his outfit and having a champagne and talking, just being a social butterfly. That was funny, at least in my head. <laughs> okay. So do you wear your own clothes now? All the time. Well, except things that I haven't started making, like um, socks, underwear, sweatshirts. Uh, I started dabbling in T-shirts, but all are just the T-shirts that I do little silly illustrations uh, but apart from that, yeah, I haven't shopped for clothes for um, six, seven years now, which is a good and a bad thing. Yeah, for me, that's very interesting because I find that whenever I make something for myself, I make something which I think will look really cool and I really would like to make it because I'd like to have it. Once I've made it, I have no appreciation of it funny you mentioned that because when I've made things after a while I have no appreciation about it either because I do make my own fil films or videos about the work that I do and the photography for the last two years is all mine now. One bad side effect is um, you get bored of your own work and then that can lead you to think that it's not good because you've been looking at it again and again and again. And that can get you in a very weird little cycle, which is not good as a creative. Uh, because, and that is when you need to have a very small number of people, but key people who you can show your work to and say, this is what I'm feeling. And I'm well aware that it might be because I've made it and because I've been looking at it for the last one week. Can you just let me know how it looks to the fresh pair of eyes? And I think that's very, uh, you can be very eccentric, very solitary and an introvert as a creative or an artist just like me. But I think it's still very important. Thankfully, you're not alone. And thankfully, there might be a fresh pair of eyes around you who can give you an honest opinion or who are on the same creative frequency as you are. And hopefully they won't look at what you've made and say, yep. You're right, it is trash. <laughs> that has happened sometimes, and those drawings and illustrations do go into the trash bin, and I was like, what was I thinking? And now when I do a new collection, um, the first thing I write is what not to do. Hmm. You mentioned collections. Now, you are known for being... Um, well, enthusiastic with your collection. <laughs> I don't know who says that. Who says that? 
I see it. <laughs> you are known. <laughs> I have read in papers, in the news, on the radio. Because you do like to bring out new collections. Well, that's the game. I mean, how would I release new stuff? But it's if you literally, if you look back, two collections a year, that's not a huge number. But what is unique about you is that you still retain the previous collections. So on your website, you can see all the garments from all your collections, whereas your typical maker will release the collection, sell that, release a new collection, sell that. But you can, you can actually still order your collections from years ago. Yes, and I think that's another thing that I learned along the line. Um, some of the things that I made from the Japanese market uh, four years ago, they're still part of the exhibition that's going right now in Tokyo. Four years ago, just, some of the items have just, just become reordered. Yeah. And irrespective of the season, spring, summer, autumn, winter, those, those three or four items are there every time in a different fabric. And it's amazing. I came across a, a photographer's account on Instagram a few years ago, and it's a sustainable photographer. And I, that piqued an interest. Do they mean photographer who's taking pictures of sustainable brands or the concept of photographer or photography of photographs as sustainable? And then that came to another point in my head about designs being sustainable. And that is why all of the collections are, ready, are available to buy on an ongoing basis because I think I haven't designed something that is so flashy and um, sort of trend-oriented that the entire design would only last three or four months. Um, I'd like to believe that the things that I've created so far, the collection that I've made so far, you can wear them whenever you want. And they have to do more with your personal style than with trend. And I think that is how um, a design or a creation became sustainable, not just sustainability as a fact of how you make things vis-a-vis -vis raw materials and stuff. It is also very interesting from a, a perspective of, say, if you have a pair of trousers from you that you like, that you can order another pair in a different fabric. Exactly. There's, there's only one brand I can think of that actually they have a jacket and a pair of trousers that keep repeating from season to season mm. in new fabrics all the time. Basically, it's the same same stuff. Which is, I don't know, I find there's something comforting about that, where you have a faith in what you're making so you can actually keep making it instead of reinventing everything every time. Yes, I think it, it's a two-way thing. Uh, from the maker's point of view, they accept and realize, oh, I've made something beautiful here and I like it myself. And I'd like it to make it again. And there's an emotional attachment to it. But from a wearer's point of view, they found it amazing to wear. And they ordered it in linen in last summer. And they just had had an amazing time wearing them around. And come winters, oh, I wish I had that. Uh, and I don't have to wear a thermal layer of inners under those linen trousers. I wish I had them in, a, in, in tweed or wool-based fabric. And if that's possible, then there's a win-win situation. But again, it's a it's a great victory from for what we're trying to do to get that emotional connection between a garment and the wearer. 
Now, your latest collection was something a little bit um, unusual, even for some of your more unusual designs. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, and to hoodlums, I think. It was just a small uh, collection. Again, nothing new as far as the designs are concerned. The garments are from the past two or three collections. But what was new was a collaboration with a UK-based small studio uh, making hats called Studio Cattle. And um, I always say I don't make anything that I can't wear myself. And because I didn't wear hats till like two years ago, three years ago, when I had an entirely different hairstyle, uh, or I didn't find a hat that would suit me. So I never really thought about making hats or uh, getting hats under the uh, Lean 45 umbrella. But um, then I started wearing hats two years ago, and then I was like, hmm, now it might be a good time to do uh, headwear. So I collaborated with this um, studio called Studio Cattle, who makes hats, and we came up with just the three basic designers. Of now there's a bonnet, a fisherman hat, and a, a cap, um, but very traditional style. It's not a baseball cap with a shallow uh, cone. It's got quite a deep cone and similar for the other two headwear as well. So Enter Hoodlumps was just the name I had for the mini collection. There was a vehicle to launch the headwear. I love the name of the collection, but I think is the hood in it a headwear pun? Yeah. Yeah, that was the entire point. Well, if you look at the photography, the three characters do look like hoodlums because they're just standing on a street and you can tell they're up to something. But they've been poised more as hat sellers from back in the day. And, um, and yeah, that was the entire point. Enter because we're introducing the headwear, so enter hoodlums. It sounds cute, at least to me. Puns always do sound better when you <laughs> made them up yourself. <laughs> um, I did wonder, though, you mentioned that you got into wearing hats a couple of years ago. Now, this is something I've been getting into myself. And how was your experience of sort of um, actually putting on a hat and going outside and owning it? I couldn't own it for a while. And then um, I think um, it's a big change. Now, I don't think even in summers I go out without a hat, so I get one made in linen for summers and other materials in winters, but you just feel complete. And um, I am not naturally gifted with an, with fantastic uh, hair, and they don't listen to me. They're not very good friends, I think, with me. So I was like, stay in place. They're like, no, no, we're doing our own thing. And I had that complaint for my entire life. So now I finally started wearing hats. I can have it my way. So they stay in place. I think I find myself looking my best version as far as hairstyle is concerned. When there's a hat on, you can't see any hair at all. Mm. I wore an amazing straw hat pretty much all last summer. Mm. And I can't understand why more people don't wear them. It kept my head cool and out of the sun. And I rocked it hard, as they say. <laughs> well, if you say so, I'll believe you. Uh, I'm still I'm still away from the brimmed hats. Uh, it's more like the skull hats and caps that I've gone for so far. Because I just put on a brim head. I just look like, I don't know. I can't trust myself in the mirror when I'm wearing a brimmed hat. I look like a crooked pirate or something. 
Well, I think my uh, the comment I get if I try to put on a flat cap is even worse. I'm told by my wife, who does say she likes me. Otherwise, she says with a flat cap, I look like a sex offender. Oh right, okay. Well, some yeah, she's a good look apparently. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, they always. Have, I mean, they always had huge groupie following, so they always take us for something. Hmm. Well, I think cats, it's, it's strange, really. They sort of fell totally out of fashion or out of use. But I think once it, they get past the sort of hipster, uh, well, trend forward person mm. now, I think they can make a comeback. I do see a lot of guys wearing flat caps around these ways. Now, I have no idea of their proclivities in relation to misdemeanors and so forth. Mm -hmm. They can't all be sex offenders, mm -hmm. but um, I do see quite regular guys wearing flat caps, so it might be coming back. Yeah, I think, again, it has to do with what's available there and people get a word like, oh, caps and hats are back in fashion. And hat the hat makers have been back in fashion um, for like good five, six years. And they were always on the horizon, but then um, only for the conservative people in the UK or the country gent and women or once in a while when the races will be on and they have to follow dress code they'll go to a hat maker but otherwise um, in the laid hatters and the mad hatters and all those uh, brands that are based in the UK they've had a, a new vigor of life in the past few years and I think that is all down to this huge influence by social media and Instagram where people have found a new way to dress up and a new enthusiasm to dress up in a certain way. And they look at all the Instagram accounts and if an influencer has posted pictures wearing a hat, then they just get a feeling that their wardrobe is not complete if they're not wearing a hat and an umbrella and a hold all and the complete shebang. So, and the jewellery and the ties or neckties. Do, do you and, wear jewelries? I don't at all. Mm. It's just something I can't get into. Uh, I don't get into watches either. All right. I only wear a ring um, that uh, I got from India uh, in a garnet, uh, which is supposed to help me stay away from road accidents because I was getting into a lot of road accidents in India when I was in my teenage, which is not a huge surprise. If you've been to India, you know how easy it is to get into a road accident <laughs> five times a day. But um, so, and so uh, wise, godly man told my mom that if he wears a ring with that stone, it will keep him safe from road accidents. And I haven't been in a single road accident ever since because I haven't even got a license since then. And you moved to the UK. Yeah, exactly. Safe and yeah, and I've tried to get a driving license here last year, got cancelled because of the lockdown. And yeah, now my driving test is on the 28th of August. Well, you've got time to practice then. Quite a lot. So now that we are coming out of things, uh, the big L word and the big P word and so forth, mm -hmm. the future is looking bright. Where is Lane 45 going over the next uh, six months or so? Well, I would love to mention the C word now, but I am working on a new collection. And um, 
Well, come on, this, the spring and the summer is coming. You need linen in life and you need lovely striped linen in your life again. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you do. And that is what I'm oh, working on. Sounds good. And um, just working out on logistics and if we would still be free to go somewhere like Portugal or Italy to shoot, but it looks hard. But it's very hard. What's more hard is to shoot a linen-based collection in England. You just can't. I think you should go back to your roots, Norwich. Probably, but I would still... I haven't shot ever in Spain or Portugal, and it would be a good idea. I've got friends in Portugal who keep calling me there, who moved there at the start of the pandemic and have uh, made their base there now. Um, but that is where Lane 45 is heading to start with a new uh, linen-based collection in the next couple of months or so. And then... Um, had a few have a few ideas and i would rather keep as a surprise for you but um yeah uh new things new new things coming up so you're positive yeah there's no other way that's good okay tan i see we've uh talked for quite a while now so i think we'll round off do you have any sort of final thoughts? Any work pearls of wisdom to share? No, just, uh, I don't know. I think I liked uh, part of the chat where we were talking about people having reservations about specific, uh, the, the match between their body shape and size and the shape of the garments. I think we should be more uh, forward-coming and treat garments as pieces of art rather than just something that you put on because you don't want to step out of the house naked. And um, so it would be lovely if people start trying more and more in their head outlandish ideas about garments. I can get on board with that. Great. We've done a good work then. Okay, Tan. Thanks for now and bye-bye. Uh, bye, Nick. And that concludes this week's episode of Garmology. Many thanks to my guest, Tanmay Saxena from Lane45. And you can find him on the web as lane45.com. Also on Instagram as lane45. My name is Nick Johannesson. You can contact me at uh, garmology at weldrestad.com. You can find me on Instagram as weldrestad. And uh, you can find my blog at weldrestad.com. And uh, there'll be a new episode next week, hopefully. And until then, see you soon. Bye-bye.